Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Elizabeth Keto, and I'm a PhD student in History of Art at Yale University. Today, I'm delighted to join Ellen Braddock and Lindsay Garcia for a conversation about art, pedagogy, and environmental justice. Alan Braddock is the Ralph H. Wark Associate Professor of Art History and American Studies at the College of William and Mary. His teaching and research explores the history of American and global art, ecology, environmental justice, and animal studies. He's authored and edited numerous books, including the landmark 2009 anthology, A Keener Perception, Eco-Critical Studies in American Art History, which he co-edited with Christoph Ermscher, and the catalog accompanying the 2018 traveling exhibition, Nature's Nation, American Art and Environment, which he co-curated with Carl Cusgrau. Most recently, he was a scholar in residence at the Getty Research Institute, where he was developing a new book entitled Implication, an Eco-Critical Dictionary for Art History, now under contact from Yale University Press. Lindsay Garcia is an artist and interdisciplinary scholar whose work engages with visual studies, social and racial justice, queer praxis, and the environmental humanities. She received her PhD in American Studies from the College of William and Mary, and she's a visiting instructor in literature and media studies at the Ringling College of Art and Design. Her work has been published in journals, including Lateral, Journal of the Cultural Studies Association, and she is preparing chapters for several upcoming publications. She's the junior liaison to the Environment and Culture Caucus of the American Studies Association, and she's organizing a panel on the architectures of exclusion and spaces of racial and queer resistance for their annual conference, which was just deferred until next November in Puerto Rico. Her video and performance art has been included in numerous exhibitions, and she's a co-founder of the Social Practice Projects, Queer Apocalypse Solutions, and Feminist Pest Control. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Indigenous peoples and nations, including Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Peacock, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pagosset, Niantic, and the Quinnipiac and other Algonquin-speaking peoples have stewarded through generations the lands and waterways of what is now the state of Connecticut from which I'm broadcasting today. Alan and Lindsay, welcome to CAA Conversations. Thank you so much for joining. Pleasure to be here. For having us. So the first question I'd like to ask is if each of you could speak a little bit about where you are in the world and in your practice right now, and how did you arrive at this place? Lindsay? <laughs> you want me to start? Okay. Um, well, I am currently hailing to you from Scarborough, Maine, although I teach in Sarasota, Florida, because everything is digital. I'm just sort of on the move, being a vagabond, just kind of for the heck of it, um, because usually you are sutured to a place, and right now we are not. So I have spent quarantine in Florida, I've spent quarantine in South Carolina, and now I'm experiencing fall for the first time in a few years, which is kind of fun. I wear a lot of different hats, um, you know, in my role at Ringling, I teach literature and media studies, which is not exactly art history, but I'm teaching art students. And so everything that I teach gets reframed into how it would be useful to media producers which is sort of an interesting um, pedagogical experiment. And uh, additionally, I'm in the middle of the Year of Resistance, which is part of the Queer Apocalypse Project leading up to the possible end of the world on November 3rd, and uh, various other things going on. But that's basically the main parts of my existence right now. How do I follow that? Um, well, you, I am currently in Richmond, Virginia, which is where I live, even though I teach at William and Mary, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I suppose uh, yeah, in, in the spirit of your land acknowledgement, I'd like to acknowledge that uh, the indigenous people who are the original inhabitants of the lands of our campus include the Cheronaka or Nataway people, the Chickahominy, the Eastern Chickahominy, the Mataponi, the Monacan, the Nansaman, the Nataway, the Pamunkey, the Potawamek, Upper Mataponi, and Rappahannock tribes. And uh, William and Mary, my institution, acknowledges them and pays its respect to their tribal members past and present. Um, 
that uh, sort of the practice of land acknowledgement is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and it's it definitely came up in the uh, Nature's Nation exhibition project, and I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit later. But as I mentioned, I'm in I'm in Richmond, Virginia, uh, teaching virtually uh, a couple of courses at William and Mary. One is called uh, Art and Ecology. It's an undergraduate sort of lecture discussion course that I've taught for over 15 years now at different institutions. Um, uh, it used to focus on North American art exclusively, but now it's trying to go more global and definitely trying to emphasize environmental justice more as not only a kind of contemporary issue that can help refract our understanding of art today, but also as a historical issue that has a bearing on the history of institutions like slavery and genocide and colonialism in its relation in their relation to art. The other course I'm teaching is is more of a contemporary art course. It's called Art and Environmental Justice. It's an upper level undergraduate seminar with some graduate students in it. It's cross-listed uh, in art history and American studies. It's a course that I taught once before and which I'm, I intend to continue teaching. Um, and it sort of explores a variety of uh, contexts, again, global um, in its perspective and how people in various uh, kind of environmental justice hotspots have been creatively engaging problems of various kinds. So uh, a week on Flint, a week on Bhopal, a week on Appalachia, a week on oil extractivism in the Gulf of Mexico in comparison with the Niger River Delta. Uh, I could go on and on and on. And um, teaching that particular course has inspired me to engage in a conversation with the students in that class about the need for something beyond the classroom, um, whether that's a follow-up course that's more of a practicum that looks at creative engagements with particular environmental justice issues in Virginia here, or perhaps that in conjunction with the establishment of an environmental justice center at William & Mary, which currently does not, not exist, but which I'm actually interested in uh, establishing if possible. So that's kind of where I am right now, in addition to working on the book you mentioned. That's great. I mean, that leads me really well to actually one of the questions I wanted to ask about it is this question of kind of teaching and pedagogy and what role that plays in your practice and also kind of how, how to push the practice of teaching of pedagogy. Yeah, I mean, what Alan was just talking about sort of reminds me of, so Alan was my PhD advisor. And when I first got to William and Mary, uh, he was running a project called Mapping Virginia CAFOs. Is that yeah. what it was? Um, and it was all about connecting scientists, artists, and humanists at William and Mary and slightly further afield on the environmental impacts of factory farming. And I joined the project kind of as a hanger on. I wasn't really getting credit for it, but um, more we, than did, that. <laughs> we did some really interesting um, work, sort of like artistic field work, so to speak. So we did this thing where we, uh, we were about 40 minutes away from a slaughterhouse in Smithfield, Virginia. And so we went there and we basically went as witness, although some weird band started following us when they realized we were possibly foreign entities, but we went and we smelled the smells and um, saw the smoke and um, saw those birds, the vultures circling around above. And we tried to get close to some feedlots. And 
you know, in addition to that, we also co-curated an exhibition with a number of undergraduate students who were um, officially on the project um, by hosting a call for artists nationally to help visualize the environmental impacts. So I think these are the kinds of projects that you can use to not only foster that kind of interdisciplinary dialogue, which is essential when we're talking about environmental justice or environmental thinking, but also to actually get out on the field and brings up that question of artistic research and how art is necessary when we're talking about these kinds of scientific questions and how to create data visualizations and can an art project be more powerful than a graph in terms of sort of talking to audiences and I don't know what are you doing anything like that with your class now Alan? Not uh, at the moment although we are devoting one of our weeks to uh, the topic of uh, the end of meat as I'm calling it and uh, sort of discussing industrial meat production in relation to climate change and environmental justice problems that the meat industry is prone to cause, uh, like horrible pollution in neighborhoods of poor people and people of color. Uh, and we all read the news this summer about how slaughterhouses across the United States and Europe were particularly uh, vulnerable kind of settings for workers who are uh, often immigrant and non sort of English speaking folks who are intimidated into staying on the job even when uh, it's not good for their health. And uh, this provides, this topic actually provides a really interesting uh, segue, I think, for discussing environmental justice, not only in relation to art, but in a broad kind of trans-species sense that I increasingly find necessary to consider. Uh, you know, the environmental justice movement, of course, began and arguably in the 1980s focused on, um, in the United States, and I suppose you could say also in India and other places like Bhopal where human beings were the victims of industrial and governmental abuse, whether it was you know, reckless negligence in building and operating factories or siting toxic waste facilities or what have you. But I think that um, ecology and sort of environmental philosophy increasingly force us to ask about the place of the human in a fabric of, of a larger community that includes non-human life forms, life communities that are every bit as affected by environmental injustice. So um, I'm, I'm for a kind of decentering of the human to some extent from environmental justice discourse. Decentering is not erasure though. It's simply about inclusion and a, a broader sense of community. And so I'm interested in thinking about art and environmental justice in a kind of trans-species sense of community. You know, we're, <laughs> we humans, if we can, if you don't mind me using that generalizing first person plural for just a second, we humans slaughter 70 billion other animals every year for meat and materials. Meanwhile, the sixth mass extinction event is proceeding, you know, unhindered. And to kind of think about environmental justice as only a human problem strikes me as unethical when there's all this other death going on. And this is one of the things I really admired about Lindsay's dissertation and her orientation as a scholar. She really, really thinks critically about this kind of trans-species theoretical frame for justice. And uh, I think it would be great if she could talk a little bit about her dissertation and the book she wants to make out of that, because it really 
hits home for what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, uh, largely to build upon what Alan's talking about and what my project does think about is how uneven this idea of humanity is and how it cannot be a sort of universalizing force, even when we talk about it in terms of the humanities, right? If we, I think largely about the politics of representation and how, you know, historically people of color, queer people, disabled people, immigrants have been uh, seen as sort of another species or dehumanized in certain ways. And so when we're thinking about trans disease politics, um, we have to also acknowledge that, that not all humans have been considered humans throughout. And so um, in your question, you sent us about sort of how to decenter the human in uh, art history, or if we're broadly speaking in the humanities or the environmental humanities, I want to think about how that has been historically fraught in terms of who is considered human and who is not considered human. And my research looks specifically at pests and how we look at pest animals and humans who have been considered pests. And when we enter the animal sphere, we also place on those animals uh, human hierarchies. So we think of um, different kinds of pest animals as not even animals, right? We don't think of insects necessarily as animals worthy of any kind of advocacy or whatnot. Instead, we think like, what's the best chemical I can make to murder all of these so that we can feed people with food? And so there's, there's not really, um, I don't, I haven't come up with like a good answer and how to advocate for every being necessarily um, when we're talking about those kinds of animal hierarchies, but I think an acknowledgement of how animal hierarchies are not considered is also necessary when thinking about trans species politics for again, art history, humanities or environmental humanities generally. If you don't mind me weighing in, I, I think that this isn't just about like critique and, and, and highlighting problems. It's about making art history and scholarship in general richer and more interesting by opening up new questions and expanding what we understand to be context or historical context and, and the focus of what we do. You know, for so long, art history was this kind of myopic lens of style and human creativity, you know, and genius, right? I mean, that's sort of a cliche. That's a straw man now to, to, to render art history in those terms. But there's still an awful lot of that in the field. There's an awful lot of humanism in the field still. And I don't know, I just, having worked for 15 years, trying to kind of put the human into a broader environmental context, I've just, I've just fallen in love with art history again by, by expanding its purview. And, you know, this started happening when I was working on my dissertation and first book on Thomas Aikens, when I realized you know, all of the scholarship on his like outdoor scenes of Philadelphia had ignored the environmental context of Philadelphia and how all those rowing pictures that he painted, all those sort of healthy white boys on the Schuylkill River rowing were imagined by him in a kind of ideal place when at the time Philadelphia was experiencing an environmental crisis, a water pollution crisis, where thousands of people were dying every year of typhoid and cholera, including the artist's own sister who died of typhoid, which is, you know, caused by human waste in the public water supply. And, you know, the photographs and verbal accounts of the, the condition of the rivers in, uh, in those years suggests that the, the city looked a lot different from the way we see in those pictures. And so 
you know, knowing something about the environmental history makes us see that kind of idealization differently. Um, and also it makes us see the, the environmental justice politics of it differently because we realize that um, certain canonical works of art were produced by and for certain communities and not others. And so the folks who lived downstream, you know, had nothing to do with Aikens' experience, except, you know, insofar as he was a kind of tourist who would go into certain areas where there was even worse pollution and, and poverty. And um, I don't know, it just, it just uh, some of the, the insights that environmental knowledge and, and ecological knowledge affords just kind of radically transforms my understanding of certain works of art. And what's more, I find that students, especially undergraduates, uh, they crave this kind of context and interdisciplinarity. <laughs> uh, so many students come to me and say, you teach a course on art and ecology? Those are like two of my favorite topics and I never thought of putting them together. And um, I think uh, my goal for the rest of my career is to sort of build on and, and exploit that enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, it all goes back to why you need both to tell a similar story, I think. It's sort of like a version of transmedia storytelling that um, I was asked the other day in class by a student, how do you convince people <laughs> like of your ideas basically? And uh, you know, of course, after a long talk about like, we don't need, to, everyone can have different ideas, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it really comes down to, you need a lot of different kinds of things. You know, we're seed planters. You know, that's how I, I think of teaching as sort of being a seed planter. You're not there to convince people of things, you know, as an environmental justice advocate, I'm not there to convince people of things, but you need art, you need pedagogy, you need science, you need activism, you need all these levels in order to change the public discourse, to include larger voices, to include, for art history to include more diverse voices, right? You need lots of different elements all working in conjunction with each other. Conversely, I think it's important to stress how much art history and the humanities can bring to environmental discourse itself, which tends to be dominated by science and policy discourse. And what is so often missing in environmental discourse is uh, consideration of, of creative voices and the imagination and questions of justice. You know, like at my institution, the environmental studies program is until very recently has been called environmental science and policy program. And with encouragement from me and some other faculty in the humanities, they have agreed to change the title of that program to Environment and Sustainability Program, with the merits of which we could still debate. But um, in making this change, they are also creating a new environmental humanities track, uh, which had not existed before. Um, environmental humanities was only sort of informally accommodated under this program. And, and so it's now going to be a, a, a more truly interdisciplinary program. But I think that uh, it's a sign of how what we do in the humanities, focusing on creativity and imagination and, and uh, the voices of ordinary people, the voices and visions of ordinary people matter because it's how most people understand and, and interpret ecology and environmental problems. Um, the, the only other thing I'd say about that is that it's important to, to 
to think critically about ecology and environmentalism itself. There's this kind of stereotype of ecologists and environmentalists as you know, tree-hugging white romantics. And that's definitely the root of that movement, especially in the United States. There's a real problem that environmentalism has historically with its own kind of unacknowledged normative whiteness. But that's changing. And you know, this the, the assumptions that some people make still in art history and other uh, humanities disciplines that that this this is sort of sentimentalism uh, and it's not really serious scholarship and it doesn't really matter to the humanities that's just that's obsolete thinking in my view because environmentalism itself is becoming more nuanced more sophisticated and more self-critical thanks largely to the interventions of a lot of smart people in literary eco-criticism and eco-philosophy and, and now more and more people in the arts. Um, so what used to be thought of as environmentalism has changed a lot and for the better in my view, and it's making, making both the humanities and other disciplines like science and policy more interesting and, and, and more self-critical. Yeah, and I see my role in, I don't teach any classes right now that are directly environmental and literature, environmental media, but I incorporate it. And it's like, whose stories are you telling? Are you reproducing that kind of white romanticism or are you using a different story? So in my LGBTQ class, I'm teaching sort of queer ecologies through the use of Ocean Vuong's text, who's you know, uh, comes from an immigrant family and grows up in Connecticut and contends with different kinds of experiences with nature that situate him outside of this kind of white romanticism while also playing with those tropes. And then in my intro to literature and media studies class, we're learning about Hurricane Katrina by reading a fictional account written by Jesmyn Ward called Salvage the Bones, which, um, offers this really great question, which is really important in environmentalists, environmentalisms, which is what is what role can fiction play and what role can nonfiction play? And, and how do they do different things or the same things? And how can they get into the mind in different ways? Um, so, you know, we'll juxtapose that with clips from uh, When the Levees Break by Spike Lee, which is a documentary. Um, feature and think about that question. And um, another element that I was thinking when Alan was talking before is sort of this idea of how life imitates art and art imitates life. And this came to the fore really prevalently. Um, this is in terms of thinking about imagination and futures and how we can imagine new futures. Well, when COVID struck in March, April, May, you know, the narrative that was produced through the media and through visual culture of the time was almost a mirror to the film's contagion and outbreak, you know, and so which comes first, right? So those worlds that we reimagine, those apocalypses that we imagine, they sort of become true because that's a narrative that we're comfortable with. So when we're thinking about creating art, and when I say art, I mean art, media, film, all of it put together, you know, how can we create different futures, right, that are not so apocalyptic necessarily? Um, I wanted to kind of circle, circle back to that question of, of kind of the human and the humanities, which you both brought up. And I think, Lindsay, to your point, this very fraught category and, and term, but I think thinking about that question of, of futures, um, you know, how, how do we kind of keep the post-human from becoming anti-human to keep those questions of justice kind of front and, front and center? And what, what role can art, imagination, you know, all of these things that we've been talking about play in that? Well, a few years ago, I taught a class called Post-Humanism and Contemporary Art, which Lindsay took a seminar. 
in which we discussed some then recent literature on posthumanism. And we also built our own museum called the Virtual Museum of Posthumanist Art. And I tried to emphasize from the beginning in that class, uh, with help from some of the scholars that we were reading, like Pramod Nayar and Jane Bennett, and also uh, Rosa Bredati, I think, and some others, that posthumanism is not about sort of destroying or erasing the human. It's, it, it gets back to this thing I said earlier about kind of integrating the human into the, <laughs> the ecology that it already inhabits and that already inhabits it. Um, I've, I've also been deeply influenced by writers like Timothy Morton, who's quick to point out that, uh, that you know, we like to think that we're human, end of story, but you know, our bodies and our, our behaviors are intimately shaped by other species and the world around us. When I read Donna Haraway on sort of when species meet, where she makes this incredible argument about how human beings have evolved side by side with dogs for so many thousands of years that, you know, we should really think of ourselves as part dog as a result of that long co-evolution. I mean, that way of thinking is mind altering. Not, and again, it's not about erasing the human, it's about embracing humility and, and being with other species and other people. It's about, co, as, as Morton says over and over and over, it's about coexistence. That's what ecology fundamentally is. It's about coexistence, not whiteness, not romantic, you know, tree hugging, not just recycling or solving climate change. It's about coexistence. It's about recognizing that we are just intrinsically connected with others. There's no escape from others. And in fact, our, our bodies are inhabited by thousands of other, you know, species of bacteria that we, that we rely on every day simply to live. And so just acknowledging that and embracing it, I think is, demands a new sort of humility about the human that recognizes that the human is always already, you know, more than just this one species or this one kind of way of thinking about our isolation and autonomy. You know, 50 years ago, Smithson, one of still my favorite artists wrote quite cogently and way ahead of some of these eco-philosophers about how um, isolation and autonomy are just not workable concepts because he recognized already then in the 60s that, that uh, we're entangled and art is entangled in materials and environments and ecologies and complex ideas and their relationships. So, um, yeah, all this kind of modernist talk about autonomy just strikes me as a dead end now because it's so much richer. The world is just so much more interesting than that. Art is more interesting than that. That's why in Nature's Nation, we made sure to emphasize not only like questions of representation, you know, the subject matter of art, but the very materials with which art is made and how it, all works of art have some sort of environmental context that is at once conceptual and material. So, you know, a silver teacup is, yes, it's an expression of, of 
18th century classical taste, but it's also deeply rooted in networks of extraction and, and transportation and slavery and pollution and all the rest. What does that do to our traditional notions of beauty and uplift that are associated with the arts? Well, it's, it's kind of devastating, but it's also exciting, I think, because it makes art seem a part of the world in a new way, you know? And um, I, I foresee whole new art histories on materials where conservation scientists are working with ecologists and environmental historians to kind of trace the, you know, the ramifications of art backwards and forwards in time and horizontally in space and politically and, and more. I, I think the word that um, keeps coming to me is complicity, right? And this is what the research that Alan is working on now is about complicity. And um, yeah, I, I found it really exciting to be working on a pseudo art historical project in the field of American studies, because what American studies does really well is thinks about power structures and identity and how they coalesce together. And um, while at ASA, we have lots of environmental projects, I think some of the environmental and animal projects are slow to enter that kind of discourse. And so bringing those into the fold has been really exciting. Um, one thing that Alan would always pressure me on in our work together was to somehow find positive things to say and to not just critique all the time. So it's very easy when I'm doing research on pests and racism or pests and xenophobia to just be focusing on, you know, the negative and the complicity, complicity and uh, <laughs> that, that nature because it's horrible, it's terrible. Um, and all of that. But I also found in doing the research that there are a number of contemporary artists who are sort of refiguring relationship to non-human animals that are considered pests, that are considered, um, you know, lowly animals that sort of um, reanimate this kind of relationship between human and non-human in new ways. There are some Latinx artists who are taking on this sort of um, stereotype and this long, very racist association with cockroaches in various different ways. There's a performance artist called Carmelita Tropicana who uh, created this whole multi-species universe where she plays these different characters in, and plays out the story of Elian Gonzalez uh, the small boy who was found in a boat uh, trying to cross um, the Florida Strait from Cuba to Florida, and there was this whole custody battle. Um, and so she plays out this whole narrative um, through the eyes of a cockroach. And in so doing sort of um, talks about the pleasures of being a cockroach and how, how much, how lovely it is to receive all these, um, you know, feelings and whatnot. Um, there's another artist, uh, Zandre Barra, who has done different kinds of performances that include kind of cockroachy things such as um, led a run where um, she taught a number of people how to um, become cockroaches and wear certain outfits and embrace cockroachness as they were running through this park in Oakland. And so there's different ways that sort of these old tropes can be turned on their head and um, used, um, I don't wanna use the word empowerment because that's not what I'm talking about here, but used in a way that um, takes back power in a certain sense. Um, so there are lots of um, examples of new ways to embrace animality that are not necessarily caught in these old ways of looking through just this one lens of dehumanization. I would also suggest building on that, that, you know, it's, it's possible to see all sorts of evidence historically, you know, in historical art of people creatively 
expressing resilience or claiming sovereignty or asserting some kind of power, even in the face of the most daunting forces of uh, colonialism or environmental justice or what have you. And, and, and it's really important, as Lindsay says, I think, to, to look for those sorts of positive expressions so as not to simply victimize people all over again, you know, and, and to, to give us as scholars of art and art history, not only something that's not totally depressing all the time, but kind of models of creativity moving forward. I find students really need to, to have a story that's kind of at once critical, but also hopeful in some way. And art just constantly provides examples of that, of, of hopeful uh, resistance and expression of, of belief and desire and, um, and a, a, a optimism of some kind for the future. Um, it's easy when you're talking about environmental problems to just start wallowing in a kind of apocalyptic resignation, right? I mean, there's so much bad news and you know, it's so easy to just kind of shut down but that's just what the powers want. You know, they want us to shut down and give up. So we cannot give up. You know, we have to embrace the ingenuity and the, the resilient resistance and imagination that art provides because there are still battles worth fighting. There's still justice worth claiming, even in the face of really daunting prospects. I mean, this planet is going to change. It's changing rapidly now, and it's just, it's going to get really bad, I think. But, but that doesn't mean we give up. And art provides a model for not giving up because it's always about belief and, and hope in some way. I would just come back to the, the need to stress the sort of the formal material aspects and creativity of art is something that, that only art and art historians, artists and art historians can kind of speak knowledgeably about in these conversations about environmental issues, environmental justice, environmental politics. Because um, I find that scholars in American studies often, not Lindsay, but often, and in history and especially in the sciences and what have you, don't have as well-developed sense of understanding of the sort of creative and material dimensions of art. And, uh, you know, this is something I learned in graduate school working with people like Michael Aja and Alex Nemiroff, you know, like pay attention to the artiness of art. That matters a lot. And, um, that's something that art artists and art historians do better than anyone else. And that sensitivity, that sort of slow, close reading, or you know, whatever you want to call it, in engaging objects or creative expressions, uh, I think is really important so that environmental justice discourse doesn't just kind of overwhelm art with politics, you know, like the creative act and the creative imagination and the creative materials need to be attended to so that art doesn't just become an illustration of politics or history in a flattened, uninteresting way. Art still has the power to kind of bend our understanding in fruitful ways. Lindsay knows that very well, being an artist herself, as well as a scholar. Uh, and this is something I also harped on with her, you know, like, don't forget you're an artist and that the critique you're doing is always sort of inflected by the creative process and the creative materials. One of my favorite 
writings of all time is Victor Shklovsky's essay from 1917 or whatever it was called Art as Technique, Russian, you know, constructivist theorist of form who said, uh, you know, by paying close attention to the, the formal materials of art, we kind of defamiliarize our assumptions and, and perceptions. And uh, I wrote that in the introduction of a keener perception. That, and, and I think that, you know, eco-criticism participates in that defamiliarizing process by making us pay attention to the form and the materials of art so that we don't just make knee-jerk assumptions and, and interpretations. We are strong I, proponents in the fact that art is necessary totally in shaping the environmental movement, if that's what you want to call it, environmental yeah. justice. Lindsay, I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about kind of the, the roles of the artist, the activist, the scholar, the teacher, you know, how particularly at this moment, you know, how are you thinking about negotiating or integrating those roles? I don't know. <laughs> I think Lindsay's probably. They're all so mismatched better. right now that uh, I I don't really know, um, but I do find that being able to have all those different perspectives um, helps me to teach artists in a, in a sense. Um, I I'm I just started this this new job here at Ringling and um, in a pandemic and the most exciting part of it was that I would get to teach artists because that was my original goal in going to get a PhD, right? I was in my MFA program and I wanted to make all this political art and I didn't quite have um, the tools and skills taught to me in that way. And so I was very um, smartly sent to um, William and Mary to get that training with the idea that I would turn around and teach it to artists. And so one of the most exciting things, and I think my art practice has turned much more into a kind of social practice experiment than, you know, I haven't made an object <laughs> since like 2005, um, but, you know, I've been using, you know, the technologies that are now in existence to us. So I use Instagram, I, right now doing two different Instagram actions on two different accounts. Um, this summer in response to uh, a lot of people in different communities that I'm a part in who wanted to learn more about racial justice. My wife and I have this project, Queer Apocalypse Solutions. So we put together this workshop called Four Lessons on Race for White People because all of our white friends were calling us thinking that we had some knowledge because we're American studies scholars. And so we put together this um, training and this was all under the umbrella of our art project. Right. And so instead of just sort of giving information to people because it was an art project, we helped people to create these kind of anti-racist action plans that they could then implement in their own lives. And so a little bit earlier in the discussion, I was talking about this seed planting. And so part of the role I see as being, you know, a professor, being an artist is what I call being in the long game. It's like, I'm not gonna sit down with someone and just convince someone to do, someone to do something. But if you can, you know, <laughs> to use the worst possible phrasing, teach a man to fish, teach a person to fish, right? <laughs> a non-binary <laughs> person to fish. Um, then, uh, you know, what can they do with that, right? And oftentimes I find that there's some kind of divide between being in the academy and not being in the academy. And so I see art as this way to get in between those things and use the academic skills to push it out into the world. And so all this is to say, they're all swirling together and they're all connected and it's a mess, but it's fun. I think that's a great way of putting it. I think it's about embracing the mess, you know, like being willing to, to make mistakes when you can't help it or and 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 be willing to to go to places where you feel uncomfortable uh, i need to do a lot more of that lindsay does so much more kind of 
activism than I do, but I've realized that I need to make that more a part of what I am, am doing, especially with this art and environmental justice course and initiative. But I think an important model for me is uh, sort of getting beyond the expert kind of restriction. You know, I remember reading about Beatriz de Costa years ago, this really interesting artist who you know, espouses a kind of art, science, interdisciplinarity. She's now, alas, no longer with us, but she felt that expert discourse and expert expectations could become a kind of straitjacket or a, a problem when really productive things can happen when everybody's outside their comfort zone. And that's definitely the case when I'm teaching art and ecology. You know, I'm not a scientist, but I often assign scientific articles to, for my students to read. And some of my students are scientists and they're in the room surrounded by art historians and artists and whatnot. And weird but interesting sparks fly when those different communities come together. And, um, and I, I think I just need to sort of take that, that uh, mess on the road, you know, outside the classroom and start to sort of think of what I do as not just a classroom instructor, but someone who's part of the community in a meaningful way more. Lindsay's way ahead of me on that, but I'm beginning to see pathways like creating a some sort of center for environmental justice at William and Mary and identifying issues and, and local you know communities that are near William and Mary where I can maintain some kind of relationship and build knowledge that's meaningful and not just regard this as a scholarly pursuit. I think that's a actually a really wonderful place to place to end things, just a sense of kind of, yeah, from breaking the mess and embracing the kind of beginnings of new kinds of practice. So thank you so much, Alan and Lindsay, for joining today. Thank you for this incredibly generous, generative discussion and, and for welcoming me into your, into your homes as well over Zoom. It, it was a lot of fun. No, no animal interruptions, alas. I was hoping for that. <laughs> the non-human stayed quiet. Yeah. But that would actually have been have been very, very fitting. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. No, yeah, thank, thanks, thank you. I think, yeah, speaking as just a student of art history, these discussions are incredibly meaningful to me, and I'm really grateful for the work people like both of you are doing in this in this field and it's really inspiring and energizing and yeah keeping that position of active hope as you said well thanks again thanks. and good luck to you and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation at some point absolutely thank you so much it was really wonderful to meet you Lindsay and same to you